Greetings, everyone. This is Gary Bean welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode 101. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end has two websites, the library website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, we, as was the plan originally, respond to questions sent in from uh, spiritual seekers like you. Um, our panel consists of a uh, whopping two people today, Austin Bridges and myself, each of us a devoted student of the Law of One. Uh, Jim McCarty sends his love to the listenership. Uh, he has was previously occupied this month, and we've only done... Uh, four episodes in 2021, so we wanted to squeak in another one. When we do focus on your questions, they allow us to explore the law of one and related matters of metaphysical interest. Um, during this podcast, we hope only to offer a resource that enhances your own seeking process. And please know that whatever we have to share on these topics are not the final words on these subjects. We are not uh, authorities, we're fellow seekers like you, trying to navigate our way in this world and uh, make study of these topics and find out how they apply to our lives. So use your resonance when listening to us. And if you have a question for us, we love your questions, please send it to either contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Gary Bean and uh, Austin and I are embarking on a new episode of LL Researchers podcast in the now. Austin, you there and with us, with me. I am here and ready to go. Fantastic. So, The Confederation sources describe this notion of purity. They talk about a purified channel for the law of one, a purified channel who uses crystals, pure wisdom and love, pure emotion, and something about the processes of purification. So it's not a concept that I recall being focused on intensively. So I thought uh, Austin and I might explore that in this podcast. And some of the questions we're going to be asking and exploring and probably insufficiently uh, discussing include what is purity, what is gets in the way of purity, or what is impurity? How does purity apply to the self? Um, maybe how does it map to the chakras? What does the world look like to a pure entity? <clears throat> Why is it that the pure seeker can find a pure path to the one creator and the morass of distortion that is our religious systems? How does the seeker become pure? And finally, what is the value of becoming purified? And is this something we should seek, etc.? That's basically the structure. Who knows where our meandering, or rather how well our meandering conversation will stick to that. And um, we'll get underway now with our first question, which seeks to gain a basic understanding about purity as a concept, just generally. 
So let's start with a baseline or a basic working definition to give us a baseline before we get into the spiritual or metaphysical or emotional dimensions of, of purity. Um, I've got some notes here, but I want to bounce it back to you, Austin. Do you want to lead us off? Yeah, sure. I'm interested to hear your notes and what um, particularly kind of like what quotes spawned this question. But since my understanding and definition of purity is actually pretty simple, um, I'll go ahead and share that. And I'm assuming, you know, we're talking about purity in the spiritual sense. And when I think about purity in that sense, it simply means to me how closely one's intentions and attention are continuously aligned with, you know, certain distortions, whether that is on the grand scale of like they're closely aligned with thoughts of the creator, thoughts of love, or if they have a pure distortion towards something more specific like if they have a pure distortion towards healing then you know their intentions and attention on a continual basis are aligned specifically with that sort of distortion so purity to me is sort of like the quality of how often your thoughts point towards that how much your intention points towards that and how much your attention is being uh, pointed towards that on just a continual basis and uh, without being pulled away, without being um, distracted by other things or allowing things to like sort of uh, mar that intention by, you know, introducing other sorts of distortions and pulling you away from that pure intention. Like I disclaimed as we got underway who knows how well we will stick to our structure in our <laughs> meandering conversation and that territory i let me say i really loved what you said and the territory that you have just begun to examine is what i wanted to dive into in question two um so i'm going to hit pause on that for a moment before we get back into intention and intention and how well it aligns with the distortion that we're seeking. And uh, I wanted to start with, um, like I said, a baseline of what purity may mean. It's pretty self-evident but I, to any thinking person, but I think it may help to spell it out a little bit in terms of two elements we are both all rather very familiar with, and that's uh, water and air. So you, sorry, you weren't talking about in the spiritual sense. No, <laughs> okay. specifically the question, I was like, I don't want to get into the spiritual emotional dimension yet. Oh, you said <laughs> I want that. to do something more. Yeah, I didn't, didn't hear that. Sorry. But that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to do this podcast by myself now. Uh, so water and air. Um, one thinks of pure H2O water and then what makes it's impure. So you, on a contaminant level, you can have uh, factories discharging chemical into water or you know, pharmaceuticals that we pee out and enter the system or toxic algae blooms or harmful bacteria or so forth, which would make impure water, you know, water that is, is mixed with things other than 
H2O. I mean, uh, you know, that may, however, frame it as, as a pejorative situation. You know, the water is contaminated, the water is polluted. And I don't want that to be mapped onto the seeking self because um, that is what we want to steer away from. So even on the non-pejorative side, water can be obviously mixed with uh, other things, syrups and flavors and uh, salts and mud and dirt and other harmless environmental animal debris as well. Um, and same with air. And I guess I don't need to go through the list of what makes air impure, uh, not pure. But in both cases, we have processes of mechanical filtration to remove impurities in water, um, or so far as I know, to create pure water, we have reverse osmosis or distillation um, as well. And I'm not sure about air outside of filtration. But that can be a sort of frame that we can then, I think, translate and transplant over to uh, uh, the spiritual seeker because it helps to scrub away the moral dimensions from what purity may mean. Um, uh, it could, given our Judeo-Christian culture, uh, some may come to the table with this notion of purity that is imbued with moral judgment, especially in the, the, the Christian and Catholic tradition. Um, purity may have been seen in the light of some adherence to moral strictures or freedom from quote unquote sin. And that may have included uh, celibacy or obedience to doctrine or even poverty or lack of material possessions. And where it's especially insidious, this notion of purity and impurity is um, when it comes to sexuality and how much harm has been done by uh, orthodox or fundamentalist religious institutions in vilifying our sexual nature and our sexual relationships as impure. <clears throat> so I thought that would be a good um, working base to proceed further and a, a quick note before or to really help reinforce how when Austin and I are going to discuss uh, purity in the spiritual sense as a confederation uses it it is not to imply ethics or morality per se um, though certainly uh, the seeker has an ethical dimension that's very important to the upward spiraling journey um, is to insert the insert um well, not quotes specifically but insert thoughts from ra about negativity also being pure rather that the the negatively oriented seeker can be pure in separation and pure in their negativity and maybe even like a pure in hate or pure in, in the desire to control. So we can link these things back to our baseline of you know, water being mixed with, with substances which are not strictly water to help us kind of clarify and purify the topic. Um, so I want to explore how purity then applies to the human and, and the spiritual and emotional and mental dimensions, but on, in the arena that I'm focusing on right now, Austin, do you have anything further? Mm, nope. Okay, so you let us off really well <laughs> with, um, 
intention and attention. And I really like that because in considering what you said, one can see that the intention can have and attention can have a, a range of focus and can be mixed with that which is not true to what one is seeking. Does that vibe with what you were saying? Yeah, more or less. So one can intend, say, to serve others. That's a big one, whatever that may mean. But find that their intention instead is mixed with uh, selfish or self-serving. So we say desires. So then that intention, one might say, and it's not a judgment we would encourage to make of others, but um, in terms of the metaphysical consequence of that, the intention may not be yet pure. And that may be the work for the seeker to do, to purify that intention to serve others. Um, where I started, in the consideration of how does purity apply to the self, I started with love and was asking myself, what is, what is pure love versus not purified love? And I don't know how apt this will be, but uh, something's become illustrated more easily in the extremes. So um, let's consider a couple who are pair bonded. You know, partner A is abusive to and controlling of partner B. While sincerely feeling that they love, quote unquote, love the person. You know, partner A in being abusive may even say, I love you <laughs> in, the, in the midst of the abuse. And uh, who knows what very complex psychological dynamics and karmic entanglements may underlie that situation, but let's just simplify it. I think we would uh, assume that partner A has not purified the heart, the, the one being abusive and controlling while feeling that they are loving. They are not experiencing pure love. Instead, their, their heart is muddied with other love distorting aspects. Maybe there is insecurity underneath or envy or a self revulsion that's projected outward or a fear of being hurt or rejected. So the self unconsciously and preemptively hurts or desires to dominate, to compensate for some insufficient self-power, et cetera. Um, this, I get into this more comprehensive description to try to give image to what it means to not be purified. And in, in this case is in this hypothetical, the heart is it's mixed and muddied and the motivations and perceptions are confused and, and in, as consequence, suffering is generated for the self and the other. Um, is that making sense to you? Yeah, I think it also opens what could be a can of worms for this discussion in the sense of sort of relative definitions or like what might be called um, like ethical relativism in the sense that we should clarify that when we're talking about these things, like we are using the example of love, 
and a couple who has uh, abuse issues, but the abuser might believe in their own distortions that what they're doing is still out of love. And the love that we understand is, uh, doesn't, isn't compatible with that definition of love. But a person in that situation might truly believe that they are loving, and perhaps they would even consciously define love to then include the sort of abusive acts that they do. And then perhaps their dedication to their definition of love might be pure. Um, so when we're talking about purity in the sense of the law of one, and when we're having this spiritual discussion, we are working from a moral framework that sort of supposes this more universal definition of what is love, what even is purity itself, and what is, you know, uh, this sort of central core pure nature that we have as entities within a created creation and sort of that we have discovered through the law of one and other perennial philosophies too, but we're sort of using the law of one as a universal guiding definition for what we're talking about. It's a good caveat, far be it from us to impose um, claim to objective reality on to other people, uh, but we situate or rather rely upon and draw upon the law of one as a source of wisdom and guidance because we do feel that it does point to truth, to ultimate reality, um, to broader understanding as it will. So yeah, it is our, our measure and our frame. Yeah, and the point that wasn't necessarily the point I was making, I think it's natural for us on a Law of One podcast to suppose that, you know, the Law of One is a pretty decent universal ethical guide for truth. But um, a person who is abusive and has consciously defined what they feel is love to include that abuse might have a pure dedication to that love. And like they could in their own way be pure and have pure love in their eyes. And so um, there is a, a viewpoint in which they have purity to love. It's just we uh, go beyond that with our more universal definition of these things. Well, I, I think we would hold space for the uh, predicament whereby uh, one believes something about themselves that it, it does not accord with the actuality of the situation. Um, would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I like. I would believe that somebody who felt themselves to be loving in that scenario is not right. <laughs> you know, I don't believe that they are have an actual moral definition of love. I think the yeah. point more that I'm trying to make is that there they're is still pure. purity in they're what they're they're doing not necessarily love but yeah. since the topic is purity there is purity in their dedication to their definition of love so you're saying that they can be pure in their impurity <laughs> <laughs> i suppose so getting you into semantic tangle yeah yeah i hear what you're saying well i just briefly 
then um, because we are in this podcast, we will be talking about purification, what it means for anything really to be pure, like what more fundamental and central quality to look at than love itself. So um, to if you had to, not that uh, <clears throat> we two monkeys <laughs> are going to in any way adequately be able to uh, give words to what a pure love may be, especially given that it is um, such a deep metaphysical and ultimately transcendent reality beyond concept and word. But um, if you could say what pure love looked like to you, what, how would you think it might manifest in a human being or human relationship or a life? Well, I think, you know, sort of, uh, ironically, given what we just said, I still do think there's like a range that it might manifest. I don't think that pure love in every individual is going to manifest in the same way. It's not going to look no. the same in every situation. Uh, at the same time, it's pretty easy to say that an abusive person who thinks they're being loving is not actually being loving. So there is still some room for this sort of relativism and how love fits into a unique situation. But Generally, if I think somebody is truly dedicated to an idea of pure love, then it is something that is continually refined mm -hmm. through experiences where uh, you're holding this ideal of pure love. A person holds an ideal of pure love, and it might be sort of in the law of one sense. It could be pure acceptance and unconditional love and just always shining the creator's light and sort of acting from the green ray as much as possible. And in every scenario, you try to do that, but then you also are continually questioning, like, did my actions meet those intentions? Did I stumble? Did I even maybe cause some sort of harm with my actions, despite my intentions? And then how do my intentions then carry into that? Like, do I need to then try to reconcile? Do I need to try to heal what I did? Do I need to alter my behavior? So like a purity in that sense to me sort of supposes that you're not always going to be able to act with pure love in every single scenario, because that's not really what we do here in third density. We're supposed mm -hmm. to see how things uh, can go wrong so that we can learn from it. And so the purity to me would be a constant uh, assessment and the constant refinement trying to discover how you acted what your intentions were question it again question it again try to find deeper and deeper understandings of how pure love manifests in every moment that you experience uh, as you go through a life full of a variety of experiences so you're saying that the the effort itself is at the core of uh, love seeking its purification. Essentially, yes, which is probably not quite what you were looking for in an answer. I guess another way to frame your question would be like, if there was such thing as a pure loving individual who acted purely in every moment in third density, what would that look like? Um, and that's sort of what we would be comparing ourselves to when we assess our actions. Um, I think just generally somebody who 
um, responds only with questions of how they can further love in the moment. There's no other consideration. Um, whenever mm. any situation mm. arises, there's mm. no anger, there's no um, ego, there's no desire for any other outcome besides I shine my love and love reigns in this situation. Yeah, it's funny how, and I think this is a discussion that in my layman brain, you know, traces back to Plato himself, but how we are able to measure or understand anything against an ideal that we don't have a perfect picture of. You know, we have an ideal of what we know when we see impure love, but what exactly is, is pure love. And um, I, my mind was going towards its manifestation about how it may look in a relationship or with oneself in terms of um, being free of control as best as possible, uh, freedom involving rather freedom for, for self and the other self and loving the self because they are, because they exist, because they're one with you, however they may be manifesting, not, you know, because they feel some need for you, though, you know, mutual need is part of the dynamic of love and what helps to teach us love. But, um, or for some other, you know, anyway, I really, really like, what you said about in terms of the the primary if not only question that the self is asking oneself in terms of um seeing each situation each opportunity each moment through the lens of love asking how can i love better or more truly um how can i serve with love how can i enhance and grow love etc you were you're sort of using um maybe like relationships is a good example for this, which makes sense since that's sort of what we're here in third density to do. And I think when you apply that question, like how can I love more fully in this moment? Um, that's when the variety arises. Like that could mean any number of things in any given scenario. And, you know, we could probably talk endlessly about what it means to love in a relationship specifically, but I think most baseline is what you were saying, uh, lack of control and acceptance, wanting freedom and wanting them to be, you know, happy and comfortable and safe. And um, another big thing for me is uh, attempting to understand and like not impose your understanding, but to mm -hmm. um, uh, adopt, not like take on their understanding and replace your own understanding with it, but attempting to understand who they are, where they're coming from, why they are saying what they're saying, why they're doing what they're doing, um, and not just sort of like reacting, but trying to uh, grasp the whole wholeness, the holistic picture of where they are coming from in whatever situation you're trying to assess. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. I think that is inextricable to for the positive seeker aiming to perfect love however imperfectable it may be in third density the did indicate that jesus came to share pure vibrations of love 
but that outlier notwithstanding, yes, um, in my own, what you just described has been key in my own primary relationship, my marriage with Trish, in terms of learning to listen, to have empathy, to realize that there is another universe that is not my own per se, uh, at least not in the relative sense. And instead of seeking to impose my vision of reality onto the other universe, it is far better and it is the uh, loving to receive and to listen and to inquire and try to gain empathy for that person's perspective, even though in the end, I may not agree or see eye with that, but yeah, I think that's some um, good headway in sort of giving a spectrum or a range to purity versus impurity with the really important caveat that you brought up that in third density, we're not here necessarily to, to be pure. We are here to make mistakes and to learn and uh, which means to distort love, to block love, to even abuse and neglect love so that we can learn to love so that we can learn, you know, as it's framed in a very elementary way, we learn what is by, by experiencing what is not. We learn understanding by experiencing misunderstanding and so forth. There's, um, I would suggest to the listener to run a keyword search on purified emotion in the transcripts because a quote through Carla took some deep dives into that subject. And I read a few transcripts before this podcast and it, it um, landed with me as in the fashion that Rod describes of the archetypes that they, or the images rather, haunt rather than explicate. And I was having that sensation when reading uh, Quoche channeling through Carla about purified emotion, um, because they describe our emotional experience in the waking incarnate state as often being one that's just tangled and muddied and you know, we're working in the shadows. Um, we're not seeing the roots or, the, or the, the, the pure core or the pure emotion. And I'm a little fuzzy. Like I said, it haunts rather than explicates. So I'm a little fuzzy on uh, what all that meant about pure emotion. But um, Quo does trace that concept down to the, to the logoic ground of self itself as love. And Ra even links purified emotion with love when they say in 64.4, the principle behind any ritual of the white magical nature is to so configure the stimuli which reach down into the trunk of mind that this arrangement causes the generation of disciplined and purified emotion or love. Purified emotion or love, which then may be both protection and the key to the gateway to intelligent infinity. Uh, we could take a tangent into purified emotion, but um, wanted to dive into the religious system, to Ra's quote about religious systems. But before I do, do you have anything more at this point, Austin? Um, no, I mean, the idea of purified emotions is pretty interesting, but 
we, uh, you know, it's a conversation that could go on all day. Well, if you want to take a dive, by all means, I'll, I'll follow you into that end of the pool. No, uh, it's probably best not to dive. I guess I will make a statement just, um, just to dip my toe in the water and just explain how I see the idea of purified emotions and how Kuo talks about purified emotions. And you linked it to similarly to, as being similar to how Ra discusses the archetypes. And I think that is also how I view the idea of purified emotion. And to give a little more context, so long as I'm understanding the same transcripts you're talking about, Kuo sometimes talks about you know, taking emotions into meditation and sort of distilling those emotions and sitting with them, allowing them to fill your being, allowing them to, um, you know, take root in your heart and to find the sort of purified heart of whatever emotion it is. And I think that essentially what that does is it helps to, when you take, you know, your emotional situations into meditation, you allow the sort of extra stuff of that emotion to fall away and sort of see that through line where you were saying that you know co talks about how emotions sort of all come from love mm -hmm. and when you start to allow yeah. the extra stuff to fall away you can see that through line that goes to love but there's even sort of a more a step above love like say love is then fractured into these other elemental emotions that i think are a lot more comprehensible to work with in third density than just love um, such as you could have purified anger and I think I remember Kuo talking about how purified anger can become not like a, a harsh outward angry um, uh, expression of like chaotic energy but sort of a purifying light of realization and like call to action and like uh, something that moves you that may have been somebody else and not Kuo but essentially that like you can take anger and all the things that we associate with anger and what made you angry and how you normally express anger. And you can bring that some, to something closer to love. That's more of an elemental, pure emotion that then is closer to love, but it makes more sense to act from that level in a certain situation in third density, just because, um, you know, that's what we're working with here. We're trying to work our way down and it doesn't make sense necessarily always just to skip all the way down to love sometimes there's an intermediary step mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me that um is more applicable for us in third density that is somewhere between anger and love where anger moves us to do something um out of love did you use the word fragment of love or phrase yeah let's talk about how love maybe like fragments into more yeah. uh, nuanced emotions that we experience in third density. Well, I think that was at least up to your knee in the water, <laughs> <laughs> maybe thighs, uh, but it's really enticing and um, insightful. Yeah. Given that everything does come from love and of love, then insofar as it seems to be not love or can be differentiated, then it is some kind of uh, fragment of love. It's, uh, there's something very empowering when you 
Whoa. When you consider any aspect of reality, emotions included, and they seem so discrete and disparate and contained unto themselves as a, a separate atom of reality, uh, but they have a deeper root and a deeper root and a deeper root. And ultimately, what seems like anger on the surface traced down far enough is love itself, just like a love distorted or love blocked. But I love what you're saying that even before you reach that point where anger merges into and becomes undifferentiated from love itself, there's more elemental step maybe even like an archetype of anger anger or uh, an element of anger that when purified is a sort of note in the melody of being something that is informing the being about its nature and its journey mm -hmm. rod too describes i remember now they are talking about the subconscious mind and the lack of ability or vocabulary to adequately describe its processes in nature and they say emotive and connotative connotative i forget the rest of the sentence um like the notes of on written music can be used to uh, evoke the emotive and connotative aspects of man. Point being, the deep layers of reality from which purified emotion springs are of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, I can read the quote real quick if you want. Yeah, please. <laughs> it's a big one. I don't know that the whole thing is necessary, but the right portion. The yeah, I portion. think the right portion is revealing enough. It is in 86.6. And Ross says, the nature of the unconscious is the nature of concept rather than word. Yeah. Consequently, before the veiling, the use of the deeper mind was that of the use of unspoken concept. You may consider the emotive and connotative aspects of melody one could call out in some stylized fashion mm -hmm. the terms for the notes of the melody. One could say a quarter note A, a quarter note A, a quarter note A, whole note F. This bears little resemblance to the beginning of the melody of one of your composer's most influential melodies that bow, known bow, bow. to you as a symbol of victory, which is, you know, of course, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ra's talking about how there is um, that, you know the the words used to describe it like this sort of it, it is referring specifically to the is that mozart i thought it is bach or beethoven one of the bach, beethoven i'm not very good with classical music um those words accurately describe that but it doesn't it's not the uh, emotive aspect of it it doesn't speak to the core purified emotion of what is sort of being described on the surface. Yeah. So basically what we are doing in this podcast is to say quarter note A, quarter note A, quarter note A. Right. <laughs> Though in the channeling, especially through Carla, there's like, then you can hear a little bit more of the music itself that evokes those emotive and connotative uh, echoes or whispers or sensations. 
Um, yeah, well, thanks for that riff, Austin. I really appreciate it. To our next question. Um, so I'll read the quote and then ask the question because it becomes obvious then. Uh, I'll read the whole thing, though it's really the final two, the final sentence of this quote that's where the pay dirt is. Um, and I'll read the whole thing because I think it has bearing on our overall conversation. Uh, so Don, it, just, it starts out in an obscure way, one of the eccentricities of the law of one. Uh, Don is asking about the existence of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, Ra is saying that this was an, a relic that actually did exist and had some purpose and role in that culture at that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know the wisdom of reading the first few sentences, but I'll, I'll do it anyways. Uh, Ra was describing the operation of this arc, and they say that it was charged by means of the material which it was built being given an electromagnetic field. It be it became an object of power in this way, and to those whose faith became that untarnished by unrighteousness or separation, this power, designed for negativity, became positive, and is so to those truly in harmony with the experience of service to this day. Thus, the negative forces were partially successful, but the positively oriented Moishi, Moses, gave to your planetary peoples the possibility of a path to the one infinite creator, which is completely positive. This, and this is the relevant portion, this is in common with each of your orthodox religious systems, which have all become somewhat mixed in orientation, yet offer a pure path to the one creator, which is seen by the pure seeker. So here's a, a microcosmic example of a religious belief or practice uh, that became mixed in orientation, impure, if you will, uh, because of negative encroachment, which sought to subvert the original positive intention. Yet to the entity whose heart was pure in their positive polarity, even that, uh, shall we say, corrupted arc, or whatever it may be, corrupted by a negative intention, or at least mixed with negative intention, to the positive entity, it still becomes um, and, uh, uh, as Ross says, a power designed for for positivity. Um, scratch that paraphrase from the record. <laughs> anyway, the positive entity comes to that uh, negative the charged object and turns that power into a positive one. And then Ra goes on to say, this is in common with each of your orthodox religious systems. Uh, so what, it, um, what those religious systems are, are easy to come to mind, but all through the millennia and through negative <laughs> influencers <laughs> um, have become mixed in their orientation, mixed in that they're not purely negative, they're not purely positively oriented. They have negative teaching in the uh, in the scripture and in the doctrine. Yet, if there is a, a pure seeker practicing, even within that frame, 
they can nonetheless find a pure path to the one creator using that model or that system. So I'm wondering how that is. What is it about the pure secret that allows them to find a path to the one creator, even when, say, reading from a Bible that is, uh, you know, talking about the murder and enslavement of um, the unclean or the non-believers, et cetera? Um, I think a little bit of uh, clarification might help because I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it and I didn't catch it. People might be wondering, what does the Ark of the Covenant have to do with this? <clears throat> um, and you talked about how Ra said that Moses basically received um, information that was uh, tarnished, essentially, but can still be a path for the pure seeker. And then the way that that is relevant to the Ark of the Covenant is that supposedly Moses received the Ten Commandments and placed those Ten Commandments, the scroll that he wrote the Ten Commandments on, into the Ark of the Covenant. And that's how that's relevant. So what essentially Ra's talking about here and what Moses received was the Ten Commandments. And Ra also talks about how those commandments were, they depicted a positive path, but they were also sort of twisted in the sense that they, I think Don pointed out that they all start with thou shalt not. And sort of there's uh, um, restrictions, restrictive sort of negative basis for what is otherwise a positive path. Is that your basic understanding of what you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, there's connection between the two, yes. Okay. And sorry for that side tangent. What was your um, larger question there then? Um. I think real briefly, I wanted to riff and say, I think part of the thou shalt not, uh, not just the stricture on behavior, but the way that that creates an uh, elite group and the way it allows, um, you know, uh, people who aren't following this code to then be cast out, so to speak. Right. And also it places the impetus of like punishment, like yeah, thou shalt not, if you do, you better watch out because you know old testament god is really mean yeah <laughs> he's a bastard for sure <laughs> yeah and that uh those who this do not obey those edicts become less worthy of god's right. love uh yeah so the larger question was um centered on that final sentence from uh about um, each orthodox religious system, despite being mixed in orientation, yet offers a pure path to the one creator, which is seen by the pure seeker. So I'm asking why, how is it, why is it that the, the pure seeker can still find a pure path to the one creator, despite operating within and reading and subscribing to, to one degree or another, a mixed religious belief system? I think that's a very interesting and difficult question. And part of my thinking comes from the idea that obviously our connection to the creator and to the perfect purified creation does not come through any religious system, which is one thing that some Orthodox religious systems uh, impose upon people is that you know you can't find God by yourself. You have to come through the church. You have to come through 
um, the edicts passed down by our religious system and you have to follow them in these specific ways. Otherwise you can't find God. So I think that is a one key point is that there is an internal uh, purity that is being used by the individual pure seeker in that context. And essentially the seeker through whatever means, whether consciously or unconsciously learns how to tap into that purity and to find the inner God, to find the inner self that can see with pure eyes and see a creation of the creator of love, uh, despite what words are being told to them. And because the religion has positive aspects within it that do help people get to a point to see that, you know, sometimes it can be through rituals or like things like prayer, you know, people don't commonly experience spiritual rituals or prayer outside of religious systems. And even if there are negative impositions by that religious system, those things still help people to maybe find that. Uh, and some people may then realize that what they're finding is inside of them or have some sort of perception of what they find that allows that purity to imbue themselves and imbue their perspective so that when they see the orthodox religious systems that have all of these distortions and uh, twisted ideas about what spirituality is, they see only those things that speak to that inner purity, that inner connection to God, rather than the uh, distortions that are present in that orthodox system. Man, great on the fly reply. Yeah. You started out by noting something that was salient in my mind as well, and that's that the, the, the pure seeker has formed a connection with, from one perspective, formed a connection, better to say, rediscovered their inalienable connection with the creator and experienced communion therein, likely, depending on the distortions of the seeker. But um, in other words, has discovered that the authority exists within within one's connection to the creator versus whatever a written text may say or other uh, authority sanctioned or otherwise um, outside the self. So I think that's a key component. And like you were saying, the... The pure seeker isn't going to fall into the pitfalls and dead ends of religious distortion. Like they're not um, going to subscribe to doctrines of infallibility and exclusive exclusivity, or like the fear-based mindsets of believe this or you know or go to hell or be cast out of the community. Um, they're not going to be pulled into the tribalism that pits one group against another. And um, they're back to where, where you were beginning with. They're not going to be operating strictly from a culturally dependent, completely arbitrary construct of moral behavior, per se. Um, I think we're all, to one degree or another, wired by the moral codes of our society. Uh, but 
more or less they will have to one degree or another transcended moral codes and their ethics will arise out of that inner primary connection to the creator and if positive they will be um, uh, fulfilling and perfecting the heart of all uh, ethics and morality and relationship with others and that's you know the the honoring of free will the holding of other selves is sacred and the self is sacred and i think you were really apt to highlight the the practices that orthodox religious systems can offer to the seeker they can still hold space to be in a devotional worshipful environment whether in the solitary monastic setting or in group communion and worship uh, for instance carla loved communion which if you're not familiar with uh, Christian tradition, she was an Episcopal, which is Catholic light, as she called it. Um, All of the ritual, none of the guilt is also what I heard you say. <laughs> yeah, right. They would, in their Sunday services, I used to go to Carla's Episcopal Church with her on Sundays for a couple of years there. And um, I would participate in communion. I don't, I think it's the Catholics that don't allow it if you're not a member of the church. I think you have, if you're Catholic, you have to be baptized to receive communion. That's it. Yeah. Um, and it involves, it's been a while, but um, moving up to the front of the church, kneeling, receiving the body of Christ in the metaphorical or symbolic form of a wafer in this case, and then drinking the blood of Christ by getting a, a little thumbnail, not thumbnail, thimble of wine. And um, through that process, one is uh, communing with Christ or with the Holy Spirit, etc. And um, this was deeply moving and meaningful for Carla. She loved that ritual along with other rituals of the church. And just realizing now that Carla is a great example of a pure seeker, I would say, using orthodox religions to find a pure path to the creator. You know, Carla was still reading from a book, which was, I, I would say, not pure in that it wasn't purely positive. There is blatant negative teaching. There's negative teaching uh, masquerading as positive, And there's just confusion uh, between the two, between what is positive and what is negative. And um, like you were describing, she um, could see through or could understand what was negative. She could parse out her, her pure heart allowed her to see what was pure and what was negative. A metaphor is coming to mind, like kind of like a radar, like you, you put out a ping and you get some signal report back, but it's the metaphor isn't working. And um, even more so I'm, recalling that years ago I bought the Bhagavad Gita but with commentary from Paramahansa Yogananda <laughs> it's a giant couple of volumes and I made a little headway into it and and it's a couple decades ago and didn't pick it back up but relevant to this discussion um, 
Paramahansa's commentary, somebody I would consider likely a, a purely positively oriented being, um, was able to translate everything said in the Bhagavad Gita into a positive teaching. And I think that's part of the fundamental nature of third density is that essentially anything can be flipped. And that's why I was reading the, the preface of that quote about the Ark of the Covenant and the way that it had become contaminated, you used another C word, with negative design. Yet the positively oriented entity who approached that thing could draw upon it for positive power. I think maybe this is part of the archetypal mind in that like nearly every tarot image has polarity in some fashion. And the tarot image, of course, represents some aspect of the archetypical mind. So it's like the light and dark are inherent in nearly every aspect of third density, I would suppose. And the negative entity can look at the positive experience and draw a negative understanding from it. The positive entity can look at the negative experience and draw a positive understanding from it. So I think that's in essence is how the pure seeker can still use a religious system to find the creator within. And another important aspect of the Ark of the Covenant is if you find yourself captured by Nazis and they open it and there are ghosts flowing out from it, melting people's faces, just close your eyes and you'll be okay. <laughs> you don't have to look away. It's just close the eyes. Yeah, just close the eyes. <laughs> did you not watch Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, yeah, I did when I was a kid, but... Okay, sorry. That That's... joke probably didn't land then. No, no, no. I remember like uh, Harrison Ford's up on a boulder and he's looking down and there the Nazis are having some ceremony and the Ark is in the center. Is that yeah. like, that's the scene? Yeah. And then the like 80s yeah. looking ghosts come flying out. Yeah. Him and uh, his lady companion just have to close their eyes and they uh, don't get their faces <laughs> melted like everybody else did. Rod didn't mention that part then. So, so you said... All right, so before um, we move on to the next, did you want to explore the religious aspect or re relationship of the pure seeker to religious systems? Uh, no, I think that we probably covered it pretty adequately, uh, as adequately yeah. as we can. <laughs> we, yeah, we pretty much solved things. Yeah. There. Um, this... So we've got two more questions I wanted to explore. Um, the penultimate is, what does the world look like to a pure entity? And I think this question really builds off of or just continues the previous discussion. So while neither of us can fully define or know the pure entity, and while there are infinite ways or flavors to be pure, there's no like one prototypical purity or if one is, or nor is there a purity that is a final state, um, though who knows if the Buddha evolved or if they've just achieved absolute consciousness and they're eternal and unchanging. But for the rest of us, um, 
there, there's no one final state that is a, a purified self, uh, nor if one becomes pure, do they become like this prototypical human, uh, which um, is model for every other human, though, of course, we can draw models from other people and we do all the time. But what is my point? My point is that insofar as we can imagine this purified entity, oh, generally, what would the world look like to such a being? Um, I think that, you know, when we're talking about this purified being, Ra also talks about the balanced, a truly balanced entity. I think those are probably pretty similar things. Mm. Uh, like a, a balanced entity is going to have the pure light of the creator flowing through their energy centers and expressing itself in pure situations or in pure expressions. Um, and they talk about, they give the example of the balanced entity and how a balanced entity would respond to things. And they essentially say that the only response from a truly balanced entity is love mm -hmm. and that no situation is emotionally charged to a truly balanced entity. Yeah. Um, I, sometimes wonder if like i i have no concept for what that experience is like and i sometimes wonder if yeah. maybe their experience isn't necessarily uniform like we can imagine that the only response is love then they never have a variety of inner experiences like there's just a single <laughs> flowing yeah. joyous love coming from any situation um sometimes i wonder if like a loving response could feel sad could feel mm -hmm. upset and so who knows if a pure entity they experience any situation whether they themselves experience some kind of harm or disharmony or whether they are witnessing harm or disharmony and feel called to service if that calling is just a pure joy of love that then moves them to do that or if that love is more akin to sorrow and they are moving out of sorrow, but maintaining this pure connection to the love that is moving them in that sorrow. Um, and I th suspect it's more like the latter because, um, you know, Ra and the Confederation in general call themselves the brothers and sisters of sorrow, particularly wanderers being the brothers and sisters of sorrow. I think it's mostly how they refer to wanderers. And they respond to a calling of sorrow. And I think that part of that is that when they feel that calling of sorrow, it's not just that they witness it, it's that they un experience the unity with that sorrow, that like it becomes part of their being and mm. they're drawn to it uh, and sort of, in a sense, become sorrowful. Like they are the brothers and sisters of sorrow, not just in responding to sorrow, but because they have sorrow. And uh, I think I suspect, who knows, I suspect that's what a pure entity, how a pure entity would maybe move about in the world is that um, they are never straying from the path of love and service, but that might, that love and service might call them to certain experiences in a moment, whether it's sorrow or just pure joy and happy expression, whether it's to dance in that moment or whether it's to do work and help serve people in that moment. Um, and that might have a variety of inner, you know, perspectives or colors inside, but in any given moment, 
the root of what they're doing is never lost and that is love mm. and service yeah i'm gonna absorb that it would have been helpful had ra defined what they meant by emotional charge right <laughs> Because like you, I've wondered on this question, but not made the contemplation that you have about what perfect balance means. And let me say that it's also an astute to liken perfect balance to purity and presume that there is a close association between the two, if not, uh, you know, identity, shared identity there. Um, but yeah, I've wondered what that means as well for the perfectly balanced entity that does, uh, they do not experience uh, emotional charge. Like, would the arising of any emotion be an emotional charge? Like the sorrow that you were highlighting, if you took the perfectly balanced entity to uh, a war zone where they saw firsthand the slaughter the two sides were inflicting on one another and then saw the the victims um, especially the harm done to civilians and so forth uh, would they have no emotion but just unconditional unremitting love like of course they would have that love but like nothing else layered in there and if they did experience some other if they experienced horror and deep sorrow and pain then is that does that constitute an emotional charge or does emotional charge mean like that which imbalances the self and causes one to lose connection with the root that you were just describing like um an emotional charge is something that causes the self to unconsciously identify with an emotion and lose the larger awareness of the creator experiencing itself and I'm not too sure myself, but between the two options that you had laid out, I am in the latter camp as well. And it's really, really a good point to highlight that the members of the confederations themselves, free of the veil and presumably also free of emotional charge, um, at least as we experience it in their much less vivid environs, uh, nonetheless, uh, call themselves brothers and sisters of sorrow and describe feeling that sorrow and they in metaphor liken it to uh, like a, a pain or injury in the body of self mm -hmm. that they feel as hurting and they want to and thus uh, emits a call that they want to respond to in service right and just to reiterate, this is sort of a matter of interpretation. Like Gary said, it would be cool if Ra defined emotionally charged. But, you know, I think we are working with two possibilities. I think it is possible, uh, you know, in my mind, I hold the two possibilities. I think it's possible that a truly balanced entity or a truly pure entity, maybe they could be in the midst of a war zone with all sorts of chaos and stuff going on around them. And they just flow with love and they don't have a sorrowful reaction that love just still calls them to the service in the moment that, that is something that ross says it, uh, they say that you know any moment that a perfectly balanced entity experiences is just like every other moment and it is only being assessed by how they can be of service and so maybe they can be totally unswayed emotionally by 
any sort of chaos going on around them and they just see how they can help whether it is in the midst of such high trauma as like what you described or just they hold the door open for somebody um and both of those two experiences have the same emotional context but i it's so hard for me to imagine and i think looking at it like that is not very useful from a human perspective um i think it it makes more sense as a human and for us in this world to understand that emotions are part of what move us to service. Mm -hmm. And I would place my bets on the emotional charge being, as you described it, something that pulls our attention away, makes us reactionary and makes us act from an unconscious standpoint and uh, pulls us away from the viewpoint of service and love. Uh, but service and love can still be viewed through an emotional lens of sorrow or pain or joy or anything like that. Yeah. I'm like envisioning what would happen if you put the Buddha in a World War I battlefield, say, you know, which was characterized by just a meat grinder of mutual slaughter and outrageous numbers. And you would think like, would they feel disgust or abhorrence or revulsion, you know, something on that level. And if they didn't have an emotional response, then they, they feel not human or mechanical or robotic or, unfeeling you know we associate we tend to think of people without uh, emotional capacity as uh, sociopaths even um but they are experiencing perhaps like the root of all emotion the 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 emotion of all emotions and that is love itself and part of uh, i don't want to speak for you but my own thinking in this matter may be my limitations of awareness about what true and perfect, if it can be so called, or pure love is. Hey, Goops. No, no. Uh, my dog Cooper wanted to contribute some barks to the podcast. <laughs> oh, uh, you. Uh, um, Reading something like the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, as it describes this universal life force that is at once impersonal and personal, it like straddles all paradoxes. It doesn't uh, take sides, so to speak. It doesn't have judgments. It is embraces all as the mirror does its image. Like the mirror can't reject anything say and maybe somebody who is perfectly balanced is somebody akin to uh who has penetrated the eighth level i don't know um open the indigo dismantle the veil is operating from buddhic consciousness the the violet ray and is an embodiment of the Tao, so to speak they have little remaining human 
personality and instead they are the all looking through they are the macrocosm looking through the microcosm and even in that war scenario they are seeing the creator dancing with itself in this play of impermanence where nothing is ever threatened and all pain and suffering and birth and death itself and manifestation is but an illusion and it's all you know they are infinite consciousness so who knows we may i may be convoluting or conflating various stages of evolution together and mixing it blending it in with this what we were talking about um so our question was what does the world look like to a pure entity and um the perfectly balanced entity, I think, is a great input into that consideration. And back to Buddhism, my understanding, limited though it is, about one of the principal goals of Buddhism is through, through clearing of the eyes, so to speak, to see the world as it is. Because in a normal third density state we don't we we i don't think we see the world so much as it's presented to us but rather we um see the world as we are we see ourselves really the world is reflecting back to us who we are or, or through mirroring and through reinforcement of our the separate identity we fervently believe in, or we are projecting onto the world. And I th that opens a can of worms. Does something exist outside of that subjective perception? I don't know. <laughs> but um, the goal, at least, is to remove the distortions from the eyes as, as much as possible. And I think that's also what the, what the pure secret does. They, uh, having purified themselves and become balanced, they uh, aren't the energy is given free passage to move upward through the chakras. You know, they're not stuck in the red ray or the orange or the yellow, or they're not distorted or imbalanced down there, thus seeing the world from a predominantly orange ray perspective, or having the yellow ray rise up and hijack the attention because of some blockage there when they are operating in a group, say. Instead, this pure entity is likely working well, not likely, is working in the higher chakras, maybe having even opened the gateway and uh, they have little to no blockage down there. Maybe that's a little bit too absolute to go to that extreme. Um, I don't think necessarily purity is without blockage. Uh, there's different ways you can be pure. But in terms of the holistic self that has purified itself to become a channel for the law of one, they are um, presumably loving close to unconditionally. They are uh, have integrated and synthesized themselves and com can communicate selfhood through the Blu-ray and freedom. And they are they are allowing intelligent infinity through the gateway to do work with intelligent energy in some way. Anyway. They're seeing more clearly. And to sum that up, one of my favorite quotes from the Law of One. Uh, Don is asking about the experience of the mind, one of the, one of the tarot images. But I don't need to reference that for this quote to be 100% potent. Don says, 
As total purity is approached in choosing of the right-hand path, then total imperviousness from the effect of the left-hand catalyst is also approached. Is this correct? Note to the listener, left-hand is synonymous with negative in this context. Ra says, this is exquisitely perceptive. The seeker which has purely chosen the service to others path shall certainly not have a variant apparent incarnational experience. When Ra says not have a variant apparent incarnational experience, I interpret that to mean that um, they won't have an incarnational experience that is different than the normal run of the third density incarnational experience per se. Like it's not that they are sheltered from all harm because they're pure. Like what we call harm could still befall such a one to continue and to amplify. There is no outward shelter in your illusion from the gust flurries and blizzards of quick and cruel catalyst. However, to the pure, all that is encountered speaks of the love and the light of the one infinite creator. All that is encountered speaks of the love and the light of the one infinite creator. The cruelest blow is seen with an ambiance of challenges offered and opportunities to come. Thusly, the great pitch of light is held high above such an one so that all interpretation may be seen to be protected by light. So I think that does uh, an eloquent job of giving some hint as to what the world may look like to the entity which has purely chosen the service to others path. And I'll stop there on that question. And final question of this podcast. Um, oh, I actually <laughs> had to. Let's just blend them because we've been at this a while. And we kind of have touched on both already. So the final two questions were, how does the seeker become pure? If such a thing can be achieved or can be even aimed at. And what is the value of becoming a, a purified being? So in terms of the how, I'll jump in first, give you some space. I don't think see purity is something we aim for pure per se, like happiness or, or joy rather. I think it's something that results from our way of, of living and being. Um, I don't know, I say that and then I think of the entity that does intentionally, like I, I sure we both do and all positive seekers ultimately do i want to purify my heart i want to love more more purely and to release that which hinders purified love so in a sense i can aim for purity as maybe as an adjective of some other quality pure love say but purity itself i don't know um but i do think that there is great value in becoming the purified channel. But more back to the how part, I think there's a couple of things that could be highlighted and not from the position of someone who has himself in any way become pure. But I would note first and foremost, um, the 
daily, if possible, practice of meditation. I think that there's something about consciously spending time in silence that has innumerable benefits, of course, but that reveals that which is not silent within the self. By spending time in silence, it's as if we become more aware of where our work lies. It becomes more known to our attention. But in a less and less unconscious identification with those patterns, through meditation, we gain context, we gain spaciousness so that we're able to witness these patterns. But there's something about the silence that has a, a silent intelligence all its own that helps to burn away our vasanas, vasanas, our habituated tendencies, our conditioned patterns by bringing them up to our attention for work and allowing them to gradually enter the fire of transformation that those conditioned patterns may be both released and transformed into their essence that which they in truth are which is love or purified emotion so in in considering the how question um silence is at the top of the list. And um, Ra describes fasting as a means, I would suggest 40.14 and 41.21 as a means of releasing unwanted uh, destructive thought forms or purging them. And um, essentially using that body discipline as a means to, and they say, uh, purify and refine the mind-body-spirit complex. So back to our baseline of purifying water that has either contaminants in it um, in the pejorative or just has, you know, harmless natural mud in, in the, in the non-pejorative. Um, likewise, it seems that fasting is, can be a mechanism that allows the self to, say, remove those pollutants from the water to um, let the mud settle so that the water becomes transparent and clear. You know, which also hearkens to the value of purity is that um, just as the water becomes clear, so too does the sight of the purified entity. So too do they become transparent to the creator within. Um, also, if you have a giant 300 plus foot pyramid, I think it's over 400 feet, um, and there is a king's chamber positioned in the, in the first spiral, or rather queen's chamber positioned just offset from the center line of the first spiral, then um, Ra describes that the will or the incoming light can become centralized and purified and 
um, that the will itself can become so purified and intense that it it draws this light into the self in purified fashion, and the self can undergo some kind of re resurrection. But short of that, um, how does the self become purified? Again, I think it's the result of doing the work of spiritual evolution, uh, which is you know, primarily what we talk about on this podcast, using catalysts and doing the work of spiritual evolution. Um, you know, we, we don't, uh, and is sent the core message of the Confederation. I mean, outside of the philosophy that we are all one, it's just all a philosophy about using catalysts for the third entity entity to realize the self and become one and to polarize positively and so forth. But um, in terms of the how question, do you have any thoughts, Austin? Um, yeah. First off, if you are looking for a large pyramid um, and you're in the United States, uh, you could visit the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis. <laughs> That's right. Which is located inside the world's fourth largest pyramid, as Gary recently discovered on his road trip. <laughs> um, I don't know how you would locate the King's Chamber within the Bass Pro Shop, but you could probably ask one of the associates and they could help you find it. And bring a, a ladder is going to be helpful because it's, it's like a big cavity inside yeah um this podcast is not sponsored by bass pro shop <laughs> um in terms of the how does a seeker become pure um on top of everything that you were just saying i think my baseline is you know that has to start out with some idea of what purity is and what they want mm -hmm. and how we find that sort of guiding uh path and so similar to what you said you gave all these benefits of meditation i think that there's another benefit of meditation and that it connects you to the inner light i think anybody who spends enough time in meditation will inevitably discover the inner light that is present within everybody. And I think that kind of helps resolve what we were talking about earlier in terms of the relative idea of what, you know, purity or love is. Um, theoretically, and what we believe is that that inner light, though, may take some different, you know, subjective perspectives, depending on who discovers it, generally speaks to the same truth that uh, you know, if you read the perennial philosophies, if you look at sort of the mystic religious or spiritual systems, they all speak to the same thing that is discovered by uh, finding this inner light within you. And I think that is one thing that meditation helps is to discover this inner light. And that becomes kind of this lodestar for how to uh, then purify yourself that becomes the path uh essentially you discover this thing that it seems transcendent to everything else in your life you know you may up to that point have lived a life that is chaotic with tons of distractions and seems meaningless but once that light is discovered it can be fostered and kindled and it gives you something to um measure yourself against and to to aim for and that doesn't discount the idea of finding external definitions of purity like this entire podcast, we're talking about some sort of external definition and how Ra talks about purity. And clearly, you know, we find that incredibly helpful in uh, our own perspectives. And if you're listening, you probably find how what Ra talks about also incredibly useful. And that kind of meshes with our internal understanding and this internal light. And 
as we go through life and we continually touch base with that inner light, this lodestar, you know, it, it theoretically should be speaking to you in terms of love, in terms of service, and sort of helping to guide you upon the path of, uh, you know, spiritual evolution. In the positive sense, it would obviously be love and uh, um, service. And as you kindle that light, it speaks to you more and more of those things, and it gives you something to uh, compare your actions against. You can uh, go through life and in any situation, uh, after you react, you can then assess that reaction and say, was that in tune with that inner light that I discovered? Was that in tune with the love and the service that I truly believe in? And were the results of my actions also in tune with that thing I believe in? And if they weren't, how can I then refine myself more? How can I then alter myself more? How can I then heal what maybe I the misstep that I took? How can I restore anything that may have been lost through my actions? Uh, because all of those things would naturally flow from a desire to kindle that inner light of love and of service. And I think that is generally, in the most basic sense, how one becomes pure is just a constant touching in with that light and understanding it's an act of comparing the imperfect self, which uh, you know, is manifest and is truly not imperfect, but it is, you know, what has been manifest in this reality versus that perfect self that is always present on the inside and is always there to help guide us and to help uh, us discover how to become more and more of ourselves and more and more of the creator and manifest more and more of that inner light within this imperfect manifestation. In 41.19, Ra says, the more strongly the will of the entity concentrates upon and refines or purifies each energy center, the more brilliant or rotationally active each energy center, excuse me, energy center will be. Uh, I think you were already, what you were describing in the, the latter half of your last reply kind of touched on this. I'm wondering if this quote sparks you into new or other thought about what it means by the strength of will of the entity concentrating upon and refining or purifying each energy center do you know what concentrating upon and refining might mean um i think that you know discovering that inner light we necessarily will perceive it at least initially through the context of our experiences, which are then can be placed in the energy centers, right? So like our energy centers kind of help to, like the concept of the energy centers help to give context and uh, certain categories for our experiences and, you know, where uh, those fall in our development. And I think that when we view that inner light, it's necessarily going to be through the energy centers that we see it because that's where the light is essentially traveling within us is, you know, up through the energy centers, but there is also the um, the inner light, as Ra calls it, from the downward flowing. Does it, do they call it downward flowing? Downward spiraling. Downward spiraling light that I think uh, is also always there and can also always be touched upon that isn't part of those energy centers, or it is part of it, but it's not influenced, you know, it is always pure. So I think that is 
what Ra's talking about, that sort of kundalini intermingling between the upward spiraling light and the downward spiraling inner light, and how you will necessarily see the light through the energy centers, but there's also always the ever-present pure white light, I suppose you could say. Well, Ra doesn't say exactly downward spiraling, spiraling energy moving downward. <laughs> right. They, I think they more commonly actually refer to it as the inner light. Yeah, they've got uh, nine different names for it. Yeah, so the upward spiraling light flowing through the energy centers, Ra does distinguish that from what they also call the inner light. Which is our true nature, which is the creator abiding yeah. or dwelling within and you know they talk about the kundalini being the rising of the meeting place of those two things so as your the upward spiraling light travels through your energy centers it meets that downward light the inner light and at the meeting place is essentially where your expressions will be i suppose is one way to look at it so finally what is and again we've hit on this final question in various ways, but I think it might benefit from some sustained focus. What is the value of becoming purified or should we seek to become purified? Um, it seems pretty self-evident to me. Um, it really depends on your desire, I suppose. Uh, if you desire anything in a large sense, more than an immediate, your immediate desires, um, if you have a life goal, if you want to be more loving, if you want to um, be a more service-oriented person, or even in other senses, if you want to be a great guitarist, you have to purify your thoughts towards that end. You have to ensure that any action you take um, matches that desire, and you have to constantly assess that. Are you taking the time to practice guitar? Are you taking the time to figure out if you're learning from the right sources? Are you looking for new ways to grow your ability, new people to help show you how to play guitar? Stuff like that. Uh, same thing for any large desire. And for the positive seeker, you know, we assume the baseline, they want to be more loving and want to be more service oriented. But, you know, there's also more specific desires that could be on top of that, like playing guitar could be a positive service for a positively oriented seeker. And so them purifying their thoughts towards becoming a good guitar player would be uh, purifying their thoughts towards service. And the value is that you then achieve that deeper desire uh, if you're able to become pure and continue purifying yourself. I think it's more valuable in the act of purifying yourself than necessarily becoming pure, reaching that end goal. I think that, you know, at least in third density, it's much more about the journey than the mm -hmm. destination. Yeah. One of the gifts I love from the conscious channeling is the way that they described that the intention to seek and especially the, the fidelity to that intention and the, the burning bright, with seeking is one of the greatest gifts that the self can give to the self. I mean, Ra described how the one of the most important uh, byproducts, I don't, know, don't think they use that word, but most important results to arise from the veiling of consciousness in the third density experience was the development of will and faith. So that the 
foraging fires of third density catalyze or galvanize one to commit themselves to a path to undergo the journey and to seek and to intend whatever the results are like that development in and of itself of the will and the faith that the will uh, can be enacted is one of the primary purposes of third density you know whatever the, the results are so uh, just to resonate with what you were describing about it being about the journey and not necessarily the results or the manifestation or the outcome per se <clears throat> um yeah i think it is uh i don't know how helpful the frame is of purity um all the time but for the seeker who is on a path of truth seeking the more hot one burns with that desire for truth the more that they hunger for truth a notion which will evolve as the entity evolves because what our concept of truth is always dependent on our particular station on the evolutionary line <clears throat> But there is yet something we're aiming for called truth for, for the entity um, burning with that desire. I think it is synonymous with, with purity of self, because I think there is something of a necessity to um, clean and cleanse and clear the heart especially to purify the heart and the love and the mind body spirit complex so that all that scattershot of illusion bound desires centralize into a pure focus so that the entity's primary objective and mo and mode of being is there's multiple core concepts like you were describing austin uh, um, how may I serve in this moment? What, how may I open my heart? Where is the love in this moment? Um, how do I see the creator? Those sorts of centralizing focuses become increasingly more and more the, the dominant, if not total focus of the self. Um, which it doesn't to me bespeak a divorce from reality and it's or the physical world and all its necessities and relationships and so forth, but uh, a deepened relationship with that world, a relating to the world, not from the strata of illusion, but rather by seeing through it to the essence, to what's really happening. And I think it is, again, something of a requirement that the self purify their inner waters, their inner light, so that they see and receive that reality. Ra describes how we humans can become purified channels for the law of one, for the creator's living love and light. And in that sense, we, we are vessels and we begin to walk that mystical path that seeks surrender to the creator's love and light. Um, 
to doing the creator's will to not necessarily sourcing our action or identity or energies and personality but by being uh sourcing and source and allowing like a clear window pane the creator's love and light to shine through um the origin of the universe is pure and i get into semantics ultimately because even impurity <laughs> admixtures of love are ultimately you know just an illusion there's nothing that is not intelligent and infinity there's uh, a mirage of light and shadow and even then i get into trouble trying to consider categories of is and is not but for our purposes <laughs> there is purity and impurity and um from our perspective or my perspective at least you know the original undifferentiated intelligent infinity is pure pure mystery pure beingness and uh it becomes less than pure by intentionally and by design uh, splitting off into 10,000 things and getting mixed up and confused. So to purify the self is to untangle and undistort the self, is to heal the self, is to become one with the creator, which is the ultimate goal of um, you know, what we're doing in the long journey. But it is a beautiful and varied and colorful world with infinite terrain to cross and infinite choices to make so it can become a little bit too simplistic and monotype to speak about the path and such like universal simple terms but also in a way all paths eventually up the mountain converge um, and become you know upon a single point and while there are infinite costumes and colors and flavors of infinity, I think there's, as one travels the path, there's a greater and greater centralization and convergence. Anyway. Yeah, I'll end with a quote, but um, before that, Austin, the floor is all yours. Um. Yeah, I don't have any significant final thoughts, just maybe a reiteration of something we've mentioned a couple times. And that is that when we talk about this, the idea of purity and uh, as we were talking about earlier, like the um, perfectly balanced entity, I think that these concepts, if they are understood uh, in the wrong way, they can be kind of harmful and how people apply them and they can, you know, either judge themselves harshly or even, you know, try to, they bypass certain necessary experiences by trying to force purity or trying to force balance. And I think it's important when we talk about this to constantly reiterate that, you know, we're talking about an ideal to help us as a guidepost on our path, but that the path is necessarily going to be very, uh, varied and have a lot of, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. And that is a necessary aspect of our time here in third density. We aren't necessarily meant to be striving to manifest a pure being in our lifetimes. Uh, 
it's a useful thing to aim for and how we can use our experiences while we're here. But we have such a long journey back to the creator that it's, you know, unrealistic to expect a much real significant uh, transformation in a single lifetime and to just be easy on yourself and have patience while still always trying to do better. Well said. I don't think I'll read the final quote. It's not like just generally inspirational, which would be a good closing note, but just about the individual who, as Ra described, is purified of all flaws, could move a mountain. How literally they meant that, I don't know, but it helps uh, paint the picture about um, what it may mean to be purified as well. So I just, I'm going to close, Austin. Do you have anything more? Nope. That's it for me. All right. Um, we are so lucky to be alive on this planet at this time with many, many of you out there. And I just wanted to offer a note of empathy and relation um, about the way that the joys and sorrows of third density work. Uh, the highs can be so high and so sweet and the being can fill with gratitude for to breathe air, to have life, to have companions and loved ones and good service and good work to do. And the lows can be the opposite and can be just uh, so devastating and imprisoning and cocooning the self in a dark container seemingly cut off from the light in a place of aloneness. And it can get so hard. Um, who knows, maybe you listening have a really easy time <laughs> at their density. Uh, I, I personally do not, despite the, uh, despite the privilege of my circumstances. But I just wanted you to know that um, when you are in the dredges and going through suffering, to try to remember that you're not alone. You're not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your work here on planet Earth. And you're just not alone in the metaphysical sense either. We're all in, in this together. And um, part of what we do with LL Research is try to lend support to all of you out there on your own journeys. And we feel that support come back so strongly. Uh, we link our arms with you and uh, would not want to be on this planet without you all out there. Thank you, everybody who uh, shares stories, shares love, or whether we even know each other or have any contact or you have any connection to the law of one philosophy itself. You're all those who are shining their light in this world, it needs it. So thank you. And with that, we will officially close. You've been listening to LL Research's podcast, The Law of One podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening and supporting the podcast with your questions. And again, if you have any that you want to hear us chew over, please email us at contact at llresearch.org. And our former script said that new episodes are published every Wednesday. But um, given that this is our fifth one of the year, um, new, 
new episodes are published, um, who knows, seasonally. Autumn, spring, and, and winter, and summer. So thank you all. Love you so much. Adios.